Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, Christ Community Church, to our Facebook friends, our guests joining us this morning. You know, as I'm sure you already know, we live in a world of competing truth claims. In fact, plenty of people in this country don't even agree that there's such a thing as objective truth. Although if you hit them over the head and you stole their wallet, took it from them and went off running, they might make an objective truth claim like, where are you going? Bring back my wallet. That was wrong. That's truth. How do you know what's true? Where do you go? Do you go to CNN or the New York Times? Hope not. Or maybe Oprah Winfrey in her monthly column, What I Know For Sure, she tells us how to handle our lives and our relationships. And there's the famous British atheist, evolutionist, author Richard Dawkins. And he tells us how to think of how mankind arrived here and how we should think about our place in the universe and all of that. So if you want to know whether anything is true whatsoever, you need some kind of norm or a standard, a criteria in which to go to, which can appeal. In other words, we need an ultimate authority, a source of truth. Because your feelings, I gotta tell you, are not the best source of truth. They're subjective. They can change from moment to moment, day to day, depending on the circumstances, right? Adam and Eve, in fact, faced this kind of dilemma back in the garden, From the very beginning, God had clearly said to them, you shall surely die if they eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? On the other hand, the serpent Satan said to them the opposite, you will not surely die. So which one was it? Which claim to truth was true? There was only one standard to which they should have appealed to, and that's the word that God spoke to them, right? But they didn't do that. The word of God was not sufficient. It was not enough for them, and therefore they rejected God's word. If you reject God's word, you choose to sin. If you choose to sin, you choose to suffer, and that's what we've been dealing with in this text of Scripture, really throughout the letter of 2 Timothy. The sufficiency of Scripture— folks, is a doctrine, a teaching that the real Christian church has been affirming for centuries. And it simply means that the Bible, the Word of God is clear, it's necessary, it's authoritative, it's creditable, it is sufficient, sufficient for everything to do with the faith and practice of the Christian life, which means everything, everything in this life, everything you are to believe, everything you are to do, you can find in one way, shape, or form, here in the 66 books of the Bible that make up one book. So this is obviously a massive, important truth in the Christian faith, but one of the most important things about that truth that I want to remind you of today is that the truth, the Scriptures also give you strength. There's strength in the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scriptures will actually embolden us, give us a guide and direction when we're suffering in the midst of a trial or a test or a tribulation. You need an anchor in a storm. You need something to hold on to when nothing else makes sense, right? Paul, in the rest of this letter, 
says that's the scriptures. In fact, Jesus said toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, he said, whoever heard and did his words, that scripture, would be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains and the flood came, it wouldn't fall apart because it had been founded on the rock. The rock for you in your life as a Christian is the Bible. So this great section of scripture from verse 10 to the rest of the chapter flowing in through chapter four is about the sufficiency of scripture and its necessity and authority. And if you get that, this book of books is going to serve as an anchor in your storms. So what Paul does in this text is he just breaks down how the word is not only taught, but it's caught. Paul's telling Timothy, remember and think about not only the doctrine that you've been given, but of the life, the walk, the lifestyle you saw in me when we were together. And he even tells Timothy, remember the things I told you before I even met you. So the strength of Scripture, according to Paul, really is brought to us by two things, by imitation and then by instruction, if you're taking note. Let's look at what I mean by imitation, which is in verses 10 to 13. And you know, it's been said that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And look how many times, in fact, Paul refers to himself, my, my pronouns, my, I, in the text. Verse 10, you, however, and he's coming out of what he was talking about and warning Timothy and the church to look out for false teachers as well as a false erroneous culture. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me. You get the picture, right? But he's not flattering himself here. Paul's not doing that. Timothy and us is what he's saying. Hey, if you find a good godly example of a Christian man or woman whose pattern of life you can follow, you can imitate, do that. It's a good thing. Twice Paul told the Corinthians in his first letter to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you go back to chapter one in this letter, we're just introduced to this concept in verse 13. In the first part of the verse, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Follow the pattern. That's not pride. He's not boasting, okay? He's simply saying, hey, my walk can match my talk. I'm not a hypocrite. Right? He practiced what he preached for the most part. He was a model as well as a mentor to young Timothy. And we need to pay attention to that because this is something you're going to want to receive and then give to others. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2 of the letters, that familiar verse, whatever you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the multiplication process. And this is important, folks, because we're talking discipleship here, one of the most overlooked key elements in discipleship, which too many Christians, I think, overlook is this idea of relationships imitation because when we hear the word discipleship we often think of teaching instruction that's the end of it think of an old sunday school class right but paul here is talking about the relational part of it which means spending time with another brother or sister in christ in this case it's timothy relatively young pastor he's living with and learning how to do life and ministry by being at the side of his mentor, who's the Apostle Paul. This is interpersonal. They did life together, 
emulating, imitating really how the 12 apostles, the first disciples, followed Jesus, what they learned from him. Same process, it's show and tell. Those disciples heard the Lord's teaching and preaching, but they lived with him for three years. They watched him apply his teaching. They saw how this is lived out in day-to-day life. The Apostle John, in fact, in his first letter that we recently studied, said, whoever says he abides in him, whoever stays connected and is with Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that's our expectation to do the same. A brother in our church told me some time ago what a great idea it would be if a young Christian or new in the faith, uh, like a Timothy, would live with a mature Christian family to see how the Christian life is lived out. And that would be a great idea, but I know in our society, unlike in ancient biblical times, we're spread out. I mean, we've got work, school, jobs, in every which direction, all over the place. But still, Timothy followed Paul. He followed him closely, and we want to do that as much as we can. He followed closely, it says, his doctrine and instruction. That's important, because you only can live out what you believe, what you know. But his focus here is on the interpersonal, relational part of discipleship by mentioning, get this, nine different marks of his life that we're going to look at really quickly as we prepare to suffer and face difficult times. We're already doing that. Our church's mission, which of course mirrors the Great Commission, is what? It is to make mature, multiply disciples. Now, you might say, as we're getting a very personal picture of what this looks like here, you might say, well, I don't know any apostles in my life. I don't see any in the church. Who's my model? Who am I going to imitate? And that would be true. But the idea is the great truths of Scripture are as much, again, caught as they are taught. And there's got to be someone that you can look at where this is happening practically, where you can follow a man or woman of God that has been thoroughly equipped or mature for every good work, as verse 17 of this text tells us. So we're going to look at this life, which begins with doctrine, teaching. We'll get to more of that in a moment. But he moves to conduct as a living guide for Timothy. Because attitudes, again, what you've believed, what you've learned, they're going to result in actions that match up. Character gives conduct. Character gives birth to conduct. Conduct here, this word that we have here, it's the only time it's used in the Greek in the New Testament, has the idea of training and discipline with it. So Paul here is putting his life on display. Hey, I'm training you, disciplining you, in a sense, Timothy, as you see how I train and I discipline my life. And then he says, there's an aim in my life here. Imitate my aim in life. What's his aim in life? The word literally means from the original language, purpose. What's my reason for living? Why do I do what I do? And the big picture of that for all of us is to glorify and honor God with our lives, of course. But specifically, his aim was to make disciples, was to plant churches, expand the kingdom of God as the church is being built. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, For necessity is laid upon me, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Hey, curse me if I don't preach the gospel, do what I aim to do, what I was called to do. That was his mission. He said that was his reward, too. In fact, he told the Ephesian elders as he said goodbye to them last time he would see them before he was going to be arrested and jailed, which is from that jail where we have this letter to Timothy. Paul said this, I didn't shrink from declaring to you all the whole counsel of God. And then in Acts 20, I want you to see this, that there's a statement there 
that carries an idea for us, as I've mentioned before, that we should have an Acts 20 vision for Acts, for actually the year 2020, of what remains in it. Acts chapter 20. I want you to see verses 20 and 21. Just listen to it again. How Paul did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Listen, teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both the Jews and Greeks, that covers everybody, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the vision, part of the aim in our lives, in the context of where we live and work and what we do, is to make disciples testifying of repentance toward God and faith in Christ. We tell people, turn to God, trust in Jesus for salvation. And speaking of faith here, that's part of the conduct we're supposed to imitate and display in our own lives to make the message stick. It starts with saving faith. Yeah, he's not talking about saving faith. He's talking about the faith that works. Remember what James 2 says? Faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean we work for salvation, not at all, but it means we should be able to live what we believe so the lost can look at us and say, hey, I get the message. It's true. It looks real, right? We love, in fact. Tagape love, the sacrificial love of God is in this verse, by serving others, giving to others, forgiving others, even loving enemies. Those are marks of a real Christian disciple. And then he follows that with five words, five features of a Christian life in verses 10 to 12 that are all interrelated. And they're worth imitating. Here you go. Patience. Secondly, steadfastness, persecutions, sufferings, and endurance. All of those are practically synonymous words in some ways. So to be patient, what is that? I struggle with that. That means to have a long fuse. Yeah, that's a hard one. That is to be at peace and be able to wait on people and circumstances in a kind and a gentle way without losing it even when you're in the right and unjustly treated. We call that Christ-likeness. Do you know someone like that in the faith? Someone that you can imitate, speak to about that? How they do that, right? Do you know someone in the faith that's been oppressed, provoked, falsely and maliciously accused? What was the reaction? Another biblical word for this is long-suffering. That's another word for patience. And so we need to pray for help with the Spirit Help of the Spirit to help us with that. And all of this is part of what it means to endure or suffer well. It means to persevere in the faith. And remember, that's the third facet of how you can confirm whether or not you are a Christian. We've kind of boiled it down, the three words that begin with F that encompass it all. Faith, fruit, and thirdly, fortitude. Fortitude is another word for endurance or perseverance, Right? we got to have that. And if you have that, you can feel good about where you're walking with the Lord. You need that, especially when you're being persecuted. You see that word there? We might know a little something about that. Maybe a little something. It means to be chased. You're being pursued from the Greek. It, it talks about being harassed in a hostile way. Now, you and I are not Paul, but we are Christians now living in a post-Christian culture. So your faith people today... I, should, should go without saying, is not very popular, right? This culture hates your faith, and it hates you, because that's you. If you and your faith, i got to tell you, haven't been mocked by someone that you know or even love or work with online or face-to-face, -face, 
or in the not too distant past, if that hasn't happened, something may be wrong. If you're walking and talking Christ, you're in the midst of godly conduct, you're going to catch some flack for that in our society. We talked about that last time when Paul warned us to watch out for the last days and what comes. Now, I should say, it may not be called a mission field, it may not be beaten or jailed, okay, for the faith like Paul, but in this day and age, you could lose your business, could lose your job, you could lose a relationship for expressing your faith or a conviction of conscience about something, particularly in public, right? You could be hassled, you could be harassed for sharing the gospel. I know Pastor John MacArthur is in the news. He's being threatened with jail times and jail time fines because he's fighting to keep his church in California congregating together while the state is actually discriminating against them in the way they're trying to hold them to orders and very restricted COVID guidelines that really seem to favor casinos and malls and, and protest gatherings over the church in that state. And so I I really admire, he's a truth warrior, his patience and his steadfastness, as it says here, which is being constant, under pressure, bearing it up, holding up, like other godly leaders have, not only today, but over history. Talk about history, Paul knew persecution really well from both sides. Remember, he used to persecute and kill Christians for a living. Remember stoning of Stephen, Paul was there for that. That all happened before Paul was saved and then called to ministry. In fact, this text we're in this morning was really illustrated for me from Paul's own testimony in 2 Corinthians. That was an anchor for me when I was going through some trials and tribulations and suffering with something in our church that happened a couple of years ago. You know, Paul was slandered. He was, in his case, persecuted for his ministry and for his life, his lifestyle. He was mocked by false teachers. They questioned his apostleship. And that was the background for that second letter to Corinth because he was writing that letter in large part to defend his ministry based largely upon what he had been through and how he endured it. In fact, let me give you a little bit of it. Second Corinthians chapter 11. I'll start at verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from rocks danger from my own people, from Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow. I took great strength and encouragement in the time I mentioned from scriptures like that. It made me want to imitate Paul's response to going through suffering. So Paul tells Timothy, hey, look at my sufferings, or look at my afflictions in verse 11. Look at that in the text. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and in Lystra. Those are persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. What are those places? Why does he mention them? Well, there's cities in a state in a region of Macedonia. Timothy happened to be from there, so he could relate. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, Acts 14, you see there, elsewhere on his first missionary journey, Paul would be with Barnabas or Silas, and they'd preach in a synagogue. Some Jews would get saved, and then a bunch of unbelieving, very jealous Jews would beat them, would stone them. 
One time they did a healing at Lystra. The crowd tried to worship him. He said, no, 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 do that. Don't do that. I'm just a man. I'm just a minister. But the crowd stoned him. They dragged him out of the city, left him for dead anyway. Acts 16 tells us they were busted and they were beaten by rocks for the gospel because a fortune-telling woman complained about losing too much business to these new Christian converts. Pagans were coming to Christ. So they dragged them into a Philippian jail, and guess what? That's where Paul and Silas led the Philippian jailer to Christ. And guess what? Timothy was a personal witness to most or all of that. And Paul's telling him, in essence, you remember that? How did I handle that? So these are the godly marks of a Christian Godly person we should follow. And from those that we know and see personally or even can read about, hear about, like the great Christians over church history. And this is why I commend to you, read good Christian biographies. They'll encourage you. We have examples there of reformers and missionaries, whether it be a Luther, a Tyndale, Mueller, Hudson Taylor in China, Adoniram Judson. All of them had at least these four things in common from the text. So let's kind of summarize this, this part of the passage for you. Number one, we're talking about imitation here. They have nothing to hide. These people that you want to follow have nothing to hide. Paul said, you know my way of life, right? He's an open book. He's not holding anything back. Number two, they teach the truth. You know my doctrine, my teaching is to walk in the talk going together. Three, they practice what they preach. There you go. You know my faith, you know my love, you know my patience, Paul said. And then fourth, lastly, they aren't afraid of persecution. He said, you know my sufferings and you know my persecution. So the question for each of you now, just hearing that, is for you to each ask yourself, who am I following closely? Every disciple in Christ should say they have a Paul that they're getting stuff from, that they're being mentored by. And then there should be a Timothy, as you mature, that you would be leading in your life. And that goes to two more things I want to say about this passage real quick. First, again, persecution and suffering is the will of God for a Christian. Okay? It's not debatable. It's not a question of if it will happen. It's just a matter of when and how often. Okay? It is normative to some degree or another. Peter said in his first letter, don't be surprised when it comes. And look how Paul puts it here in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire or intend on living a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? That is an affirmative, universal statement if you meet that condition. That means if you're living in obedience to God's commands, the old uh, dictionary guy, Noah Webster, defined it that way, godly life, okay, which we're all supposed to do, if you do that, you're going to get it at some point in time. So I'm not here to scare you. I'm just here to prepare you. Persecution for the faith and a godly life will probably come our way and make it worse before it gets better. Eventually, that's a guarantee. It will be much worse. As Paul writes in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, They'll go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And that word deceive means leading someone astray from the truth into error. So that's going to happen because of evil people, he said. Literally wicked people, bad people. So we have to watch out again, not only as we said last time, for an ungodly culture, but ungodly teachers and imposters like 
verse 8 referred to when it was talking about those Egyptian magicians way back when. Okay? False teachers, imposters, they're going to be bolder, more subtle, like the Antichrist in the days ahead. Mark that. Okay? Throughout the gospel, Jesus tells us, expect this. It's a test of your faith, really. You can pass or fail, which is going to really let you know who you are, who you stand with. You say, really? Well, Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower, look what the Lord said there in verse 21. He said, the person that doesn't have room in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So again, it's not your faith profession as much as it is your faith possession, right? Second thing from the passage, all right? I want you to go back to Matthew. There's going to be blessings. There's going to be rewards for those that can endure. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we have what's called the Beatitudes, those pronouncements of blessings and happiness from the Lord to true disciples. And he says in verse 10, Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he goes as far as to say in verse 12, rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, welcome. You're in good company. But if we duck persecution, if we hold back from living and speaking the truth, or handle our persecution poorly, we can miss the Lord's blessings. I mean, it is easier to go the other way. Talked about John MacArthur. He himself once said, quote, self-centered Christians who serve the Lord half-heartedly seldom have to pay a price for their faith. They are of little threat to Satan's work because they are of little benefit to Christ's, end quote. That's very true. So we have hope. We have hope to help us persevere, folks. Verse 11 says the Lord did deliver or rescue Paul from these afflictions and persecutions on behalf of the gospel. He did for quite some time. God can do that whenever he wants. Pull us out of the fire. But as we know from the context of this letter, Paul would eventually be martyred for the faith. He would die for the faith. So some won't be delivered in this life. That's fine. Our Lord told us, we're not to fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul, that's man, but we are to fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, and that's God. We fear the Lord. So persecutions and trials are just part of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. In fact, an early church father, Tertullian, was quoted as saying, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So persecution feeds growth into the kingdom, in the church. And we have the hope of glory in heaven to get us through. I want, you, I want you to look at Hebrews in the 11th chapter, the book of Hebrews, and that's the Hall of Faith chapter that we're so familiar with. Listen to it. Listen to what these folks went through and how. I'm just going to give you a little bit of it. Hebrews 11, verse 36, where others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted. They were mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Okay, Not in that lifetime. 
since God had provided something better for us. What was the promise of something better God promised those martyrs, those faithful, persecuted believers and on the Old Testament side and the New Testament side? Well, this chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews says it was a better country. That is a heavenly one, the New Jerusalem, right? We're looking forward to, we're looking for that heavenly home in our glorified bodies. Folks, if you're a Christian, your future is bright. We look forward to the future with great anticipation and expectation. That's what hope in Christ literally means. Hope of glory, hope of heaven. That's what keeps you going when you're persecuted and are being su and are suffering for the faith. That's what helps you to patiently endure. Amen? So we are to imitate great men and women of the faith, follow their example as to how to fight for the faith and suffer well, taking strength from the scriptures where Paul says that strength comes. And he also says it comes by a second thing, not only by imitation, but by instruction. Imitation and instruction. Paul's now telling Timothy and the church, do what I do, yes, but remember, also do what I say, what I taught you, what you learned from your mother and your grandmother who raised you since you were a baby. Look at chapter 1, verse 5 of this letter. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Paul says, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. He said, Timothy, since you were a baby, literally it's what childhood means here in the Greek. It's a, referring to a newborn child, an infant. He's saying, since then you have heard and been taught the gospel and the word, so stay in that, hold on to that truth that you have, it says, firmly believed, meaning you've been convinced of. You've been persuaded of its truth. And folks, this is not an exaggeration. By Jewish custom, children were taught God's law at home and to memorize it at a very early age, as soon as they could remember anything. Deuteronomy 6 affirms that. So Timothy got that first, that foundation of faith, first from his home, and then it was anchored by the church, in his case, Paul one-on-one. -on -one. Parents. I want to talk to you for a moment. Parents, pay particular attention to what I just read and heard, because this is so critically important. Timothy received the gospel truth on the lap of his mother. His mother okay? That's where the truth was planted in him, where it starts. This is why parents, not the school, not even the church, is commanded to be the primary discipler of children. Parents are. Remember, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. That's directed at parents. I'm going to give you some wisdom on this. Check this out from the book of Proverbs. All right, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to the language here. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, the first two verses. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts or commands. Do not forsake my teaching. All of Psalm 78 is talking about the same thing. In the New Testament, it says, Fathers, bring up your what? children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Listen, while you're teaching your child the ABCs at home, work in some Ten Commandments. Okay? You can do that. I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, quote, 
Babes receive impressions long before we are aware of the fact. The Holy Scripture may be learned by children as soon as they are capable of understanding anything. It is a very remarkable fact, which I have heard asserted by many teachers, that children will learn to read out of the Bible better than from any other book. Give us the first seven years of a child with God's grace, and we may defy the world, the flesh, and the devil to ruin that immortal soul. Wow. God expects children can understand some scripture and benefit from being exposed to it. They receive spiritual nourishment day to day like they receive food as nourishment day to day. They're not going to get all the nourishment one time in one meal, but it's the accumulation of the meals like sermons and teaching and, and memorization and meditation on the word day after day after day. I know kids who are five years old, seven to eight years old, okay, they're reading and understanding Scripture on their own, and many of them from years past, I remember, in the King James Version, which is difficult, that vocabulary and, their, and that translation in today's English. That was challenging, but they were getting some. So this is doable. Children like adults can understand the Scriptures a little bit at a time. And statistically speaking, you should know this, it's believed that most people who come to saving faith in Christ do so between the ages of 4 and 14. So a Christian home that's relying on the strength of the sufficiency of Scripture is the first and best place in which children are going to come to faith and are going to grow in it. And they're going to be better equipped to withstand persecution and suffering like we're talking about. It's going to come later. And by the way, just as an example, Corey Ten Boom, a hiding place. She asked Christ to be her savior at age five. There's thousands, tens of thousands of examples like that. So you might ask now, what role does the church have to play in all of this then? Well, find yourself an FIC. What is that? Family Integrated Church, like ours, Christ Community Church. That's a church that understands the concept of family discipleship that is supported, nurtured by the local church. Are you teaching, are you teaching your children the word at home? Great. Go to CCC, a place like it, where your child will be integrated, not segregated from the worship, from the fellowship, from the discipleship process of the church. And you say, really, Pastor, where do you get that from? Because I don't, I don't know if a child can get all this. Well, it's simple. The Bible and the greater history of God's people, Israel and the church, for most of the last 4,000 years, Tell us this is what it was like. Deuteronomy 29, I want to show you that passage. Moses is giving the law the second time to a new generation of Israel there. Check this out, Deuteronomy 29, beginning in verse 10. You are standing today, all of you before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel. Listen, your little ones, Hebrew, same idea as in the Greek, your wives and the sojourner or foreigner who is in your camp from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today. It's the same thing when Joshua read the law to the people. Same thing with Ezra, when the people of God were returning to reestablish the holy city after the captivity. In fact, after Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and Colossae, the letters were read aloud in church. So kids would be in the church hearing this. I mean, who was he talking to when he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord? Well, Paul's writing to children. 
He's calling their attention in the letter. That can only happen if this letter, a circular letter they called it back then, went around all the churches. That was scripture then. That can only happen if they were read aloud to the children who were with their parents in the congregation. So what's my biblical point here? Simple. Parents and children are meant to be together in church, just like they are at home. Now, is there a time for additional instruction, as we're talking about here, that's targeted to a, a gender, perhaps, or age? Yes, that happens with other members of the faith community in and out of the worship service, because Titus 2 gives that example, older men with the younger men, older women with the younger women. The idea is get the word into your kids ASAP and as much as possible. It will train and it will strengthen them and Lord willing, it will save them. Remember, every little home is a little church. And if dads are at home, they are the pastors of that little church. Their responsibility. You know, I just think of those young men, Daniel's friends, when they were persecuted, willing to die in the fiery furnace. That's civil disobedience, by the way, refusing to worship the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. It came to my mind as I thought about Daniel 11, where it says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So how do you know God? How do you know Christ? Primarily from the word of God. This instruction saves lives. Look at verse 15, the end of the text. And how from childhood you've been acquainted, how you've become known with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Talk about the sufficiency, necessity of Scripture. Paul argues that you have to have the Word in order to be saved. It's got to get in some way, somehow. He repeated that in Romans 10, didn't he? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ, or God. And the word able here, it's able to make you wise, is the word we get power from in English, because the root of the word is dynamite. So the Bible does that to a born-again heart. The Spirit and the Word make you alive so you can believe. So the Word is the tool, Spirit and the Word is what God uses. And here in the context, it's talking about sacred writings. That means Holy Scripture. That's what it is. Timothy had known Scripture since he was a child. That would be, now listen, the Old Testament scriptures, right, that point to the gospel. His mother and grandmother were Jewish believers, and the Old Testament was all they had in their hand because the New Testament was being written in his lifetime, including this inspired letter from Paul to Timothy. However, the oral history of the Bible and the gospels had already been circulating by that time. Paul makes mention of that in 1 Corinthians 15. Most of the disciples, the eyewitnesses of Christ, they were still alive talking Bible. And what is known is that Jesus said that the Old Testament, listen, not just the prophecies, point to him as Messiah and Savior. In John 5, it talks about the Father who sent him, Christ, bore witness about him, as did the scriptures. On the road to Emmaus, when the Lord's walking with those two men after the resurrection, Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the, what? scriptures, the things concerning himself. How? How is this connection made? Well, the promises of redemption, the promise of a final atonement for sin, the covenant promises. Abraham looked forward to that. He knew about that. Moses knew it. Isaiah prophesied, pictured that, that suffering servant, that Messiah to come, Savior, in that great chapter 53. 
All that truth pointed to Christ that made Timothy wise or have an understanding of salvation. See, the word is the door that you walk through in order to get into the kingdom, right? Like Paul said in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. So as I close, this is why it's important that you continue, folks, preaching the gospel to yourself each and every day. Especially, it's so necessary when you're struggling and you're unsure of where you stand before the Lord, right? You need that. The scriptures, the gospel, is what makes you wise for salvation by faith alone. So, you, everyone listening right now, you need to make sure that you are in a Bible and Christ-exalting church that is teaching the gospel and the truth week in, week out, day in, day out, year in, year out. You need that in order to be wise unto salvation. Chuck Swindoll said we should think of the scriptures as an absolutely accurate map. It's a map that's going to get you to a certain place. But just looking at a map, if you had a regular one in the old days that used to be on paper, it's not going to get you automatically to Arizona or England or Peru, wherever you're going. Getting to those places means you have to make an effort you got to pay the cost. you got to take time to travel and stay at it till you arrive, till you get there, right? You have to persevere. So it is with the Christian life, as we've been learning here from Paul's second letter to Timothy. God's map is reliable. It's available. It is clear and it's direct. That is the sufficiency of Scripture. But there's there's no hocus-pocus in his pages, okay? It's not going to automatically send you to some place like a magic carpet. You can't take it like a magic pill. You wake up in the morning and all your problems are gone. No, that's not it. There is no such instant maturity available on this earth. God doesn't offer some kind of a formula, seven easy steps that produces fully mature Christians overnight. Christian growth comes through hardcore, gutsy perseverance. How about that? And that includes persecution and suffering. Applying what you see, what you hear, and obeying it. That's how we can handle our problems and trials. So this kind of growth, the discipleship, the strength that you need in the scriptures we've said today comes by imitation and comes by instruction. Amen? There is strength in the scriptures for us. We just need to open and get into this map. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would grant us the wisdom to discern the truth that you have made known and that we may not believe one word beyond what you have shown. The scriptures are sufficient, authoritative, they're necessary, they're credible. We can rely on them because they are your spoken word through the authors, 40 different authors over 1,500 years, different continents, different contexts, and it's all one harmonious story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration of the world. That's the history of our existence, wrapped up in four basic components. Lord, we're in the time of redemption. We're in the time where people are rebels. They reject you, your son, your gospel, and they break your law every day. 
They may profess faith in Christ, but their life indicates something completely different. They don't see faith, fruit, or fortitude in their life, or not much. Lord, those people that understand that, see that, may they repent. May they turn to you and ask for forgiveness. They may be Christians that are just in a bad position right now. They haven't been following a good example, imitation. They're not in the Word, not getting that instruction they need. They're not getting the strength from the scriptures that's found here. Lord, wash them, cleanse them new. Lord, they would seek you out, draw near to you, that you would draw near to them. And they would become more Christ-like in their walk. And for those that don't know you at all, we have guests, viewers online, watching, listening to this. This could include them, Lord. May they turn to you, make a commitment, Lord, to stop being their own God and love and follow and obey the God, the one and only God, Lord and Savior. They would turn to you, make a decision to get away from their sin and selfishness, and that they would trust in Jesus alone by faith to forgive their sins and to really receive a rich, abundant life, even in the wild and wacky times that we're in, because you promised that. You give us strength. You give us peace that surpasses all understanding. And that comes to those that are only in Christ, that believe in Jesus. Let's pray, Lord God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will do that work and draw someone to Christ today. We'll draw many back to Christ and to Christ. Make them wise for salvation, as our text said today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 